Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, lots of news brewing across the soap dial. Uh, Greg Vaughn, who has played Daisy's Eric Brady since 2012, revealed on Steve Burton and Bradford Anderson's podcast, that's awesome, that he has left the show. So Greg says he's taking a break, not necessarily saying goodbye altogether, but adds that he was filming episodes of Owns Queen Sugar, a show I absolutely love, before the pandemic hit. So I guess we will see how the show is going to wrap up Eric's story. Now, this announcement comes on the heels of Christian Alfonso's that she is leaving as well. We have an in-depth interview with Christian in our new issue. She told me she had actually thought about leaving four years ago, but stayed at executive producer Ken Corday's behest and shares uh, what was behind her thinking and how she feels now that she's made her decision to go. That was a very emotional interview. I mean, I got choked up reading it. You know, in daytime, we have a tendency to say never say never because there are countless examples of actors, you know, saying they're never coming back and changing their minds. But there was a finality to Christian's tone that I was really struck by. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless of what happens in the future, you know, the mark she has left on days is indisputable. And it's a bummer, too, to be saying goodbye to Greg Vaughn, especially since Eric and Nicole have finally found their long-awaited happiness. You know, I'm already bracing myself for what drama might befall them (laughs) to usher Eric off the canvas. Now, those are the headline exits. And in terms of returns, fans are, of course, awaiting the hotly anticipated returns of original episodes of YNR and GH. The good news there is that both shows are well on their way to returning to the airwaves. GH has confirmed that its triumphant return will take place on Monday, August 3rd, and I think fans can expect a formal announcement of YNR's return date in the very near future as well. Which is great news. One show that is back is Bold and Beautiful, and I cannot express how absolutely thrilled I was to watch new episodes and see the actors. I mean, it was a total, like, hello, old friends moment. (laughs) You know, and interestingly, the episode that they came back with was a new episode, but then the two episodes after that had actually been filmed before the pandemic. And the show held those episodes because Wyatt walking into the beach house with such a surprised look on his face, you know, really turned out to be like the most perfect cliffhanger. Yeah. 
But now we're really going to get to see how they're filming under the new guidelines and what the show is going to look like. I mean, you you can see in the scenes that people are, you know, maybe a little further apart than you would expect, but it doesn't feel like strange. Mm-hmm. I also love how during that conversation between Carter and Katie, they made a veiled reference to the pandemic in terms of like that they'd been away a while. Um, they had that bold is back messaging video, but they were actually talking about the reopening of the Forrester boutique. So it was like clever without hitting you over the head with, you know, COVID. Right. Totally. And, you know, uh, and my goodness, like they aired a, a doozy of a preview teasing some of the major storyline twists that the show is going to be serving up in the coming weeks. My hat is off to B&B uh, for returning to the airwaves with a bang and creating, I, I think, a good deal of positive buzz and fan excitement both over the innovative ways that they've come up with to sort of fudge intimacy, if you will, given that the actors are practicing social distancing on the set, uh, and also giving a real story payoff. So, I mean, like, that's how you do it. Uh, That's how you come back successfully when a daytime show is forced to do something that a daytime show is not meant to do, which is go on a long hiatus. I I feel like B&B really got the memo on, uh, you know, sucking fans back in right off the bat. Oh, Totally. And, you know, it's very interesting because with the classic episodes, um, you know, two former colleagues of ours told me that they've been watching old soaps on YouTube while quarantining because like the classic episodes sort of set the tone and they told me that it brings a big sense of comfort to them, like seeing like real classic episodes. Like, I don't know if you caught the Young and Restless first two episodes, like that was mind blowing. So like to to watch those. Yeah, absolutely. But one of our old friends has been watching Another World, the other All My Children. And actually more specifically, she said Tad and Dixie because she loved them. They were her favorite couple. And, you know, they certainly were one of the show's signature couples. And I know they hold a very special place in so many viewers' hearts. Mine included. You know, I think the very first episode of All My Children, I ever saw was Tad and Dixie's first wedding in December, 1989. Uh, And that show ultimately became a big part of my life, not just from a fan perspective, but because it was the show I covered for Soap Opera Digest from 2002 through uh, 2011 when it was canceled. And Tad and Dixie certainly had their ups and downs uh, as any good long running soap couple would. And while their three marriages to one another doesn't set a daytime record, they do have the distinction of being the only couple where both members of the pairing donned a chicken suit as a romantic gesture. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, they were one of the, the, that shows best examples of an against all odds kind of couple, which is like catnip soap fans. Absolutely. Well, our guest today is Katie McLean, who played Dixie, as well as As the World Turns is Rosanna and Young and Restless is Kelly. So let's check in with her and see what's going on. Hi, Katie. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? We're doing well. We're so happy you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first of all, tell us how you've been doing the past few months. Well, it's been interesting, hasn't it? (laughs) It's been interesting. Um, You know, at first, I think I was terrified and um, really upset. And then I just kind of realized that it was really, that attitude was everything and that I was going to have to really do things that gave me joy and focus on positive things that I could have control over. So, um, and I also thought about the fans a lot and I started posting, you know, just live from our kitchen, we were cooking dinner or singing a song or something that was letting people in a little bit more, because I think I thought immediately a lot of other people must be very afraid. And there must also be people out there who, you know, are having to look at quarantining by themselves and 
you know, I, I always have a, a soft spot in my heart for people who s- suffer with loneliness. So I got very busy doing those things for a while. And that also kind of gave me a purpose and a focus for a while. Then, of course, the whole world decided to do the same thing. And we had Lady Gaga and like thousands of people singing on television. And I was like, okay, I think everybody's going to be good for a while. I'm going to go get some bread. (laughs) So you, as you know, made your entree into showbiz at a remarkably young age. You were working on stage and in TV commercials starting at the age of nine. And then it was just about 10 years after that in 1988, when you were tapped to play the role of Dixie Cooney on All My Children. So to kick us off, tell us your uh, All My Children casting story. Um, Let's see. I was 18 when I auditioned for All My Children, and um, they wanted me to screen test the first time around. And I had um, been cast in a pilot um, with Michael McKeon. And so I couldn't because the pilot, we were waiting to find out if the pilot was going to go. Um, it wasn't picked up and it became a TV movie. So a few months later, when they were looking to recast, I was called back in for a screen test. And um, I was very excited about that um, uh, for many reasons. You know, I, I'd auditioned for um, Loving and Guiding Light and really bombed those. <laughs> oh, my God. I was so I mean, for Guiding Light. I, I went into like, uh, my gosh, what do you call it? Like, I just blanked, like the dust motes were floating in front of my (laughs) eyes. I could feel the sweat trickling down my back. And they were like, Katie, Katie. I like heard it as an (laughs) echo in my head. I was like, what's happening? They're like, it's okay. It's okay. Next time. I mean, I just, I couldn't remember a thing. I didn't know what was happening. I was so terrified. So I was like, you better get a grip girl and uh, (laughs) you need this job. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and everyone was very kind when I got there, you know, it was the old studio on 66th street and the, from the casting director to the, um, executive producer, um, David Canary, uh, was who I did the screen test. And I just didn't even look at any of the other girls. I just put up blinders. I was wearing a suede skirt with a silk shirt with shoulder pads of course course. yeah it was (laughs) you know and I just man I I just used every ounce of effort that I had to keep focused remember my lines do what I said I was going to do and you know thank goodness they liked it you know it was uh it was a big break big break Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's sort of rare that a newcomer gets handed as heavy a storyline load as you got in those early years as Dixie. So by 1990, she had married Adam Chandler and borne him a son, fallen in love with Tad and married him, which are all like huge plot developments. So there was not a gentle introduction to the pace of daytime, if you will. Um, Was that exciting to you or was it overwhelming? I had been a dancer as a kid. And so discipline and pushing yourself past pain was very normal for me. You know, I was a tap dancer in particular and, you know, we would dance until our feet bled. And so, you know, then you'd put like a piece of mole skin. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like a, mm-hmm. it's like a thick um, cover that sticks onto your heel and, um, you know, and you just keep going until you just couldn't anymore. So, you know, grinding it out <laughs> was in my blood and, and, Frankly, I have to say I enjoyed that challenge and I still do. I still push myself to to go further, work harder, 
do more um, than probably most people might uh, enjoy. Um, for me, it, it, I love the challenge. So in that regard, it wasn't it wasn't overwhelming. I just felt the responsibility. And I felt like I had to do well or else I wasn't an actor. I mean, I had to do really well. Um, I, I'd been working since I was nine. And, you know, I, I was never like, um, even though I had great discipline, I was never, I never had that I want to be famous thing. And I never had that, um, I, you, know, uh, you know, look at me, I'm a star, pay attention to me thing. That just never was my jam. So, but I knew I had to have something, something that pushed myself out of my shyness. Um, and, you know, in, in order to, to focus. And so in, in order to accomplish the challenge of, of all of these scenes and thank goodness I had, I'd started studying with a guy named Michael Howard and I had craft and I had craft to fall back on. And so I just kept studying and doing my craft and doing, you know, things that people made fun of me for like breathing exercises on set or stretching on set or, you know, bringing in uh, extra props or photographs and hiding them on set so I could have more of a connection to the character. And and that was my goal. If I, if I didn't do really, really well on the show, then I wasn't meant to be an actor and I should do something else. So that's kind of how I talked myself into being able to face the heavy load. And, you know, I didn't have any concept of the impact that that was having on people. All I did was, do I still have thought was, do I still have my job today? Great. Oh, I've got another scene. Great. Oh, I'm working more. Great. They're going to keep me. They're not going to fire me. (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? So, I mean, you kind of have to think that way in this business. It's, it's really hard business and you are being judged every day. And you, if you don't give your best one day, you know, you have to be already very successful to be able to slack a little bit. (laughs) You know, you earn your slacking. (laughs) Well, I don't even know how many non-working hours you had at that time, but I'm curious because you were a California girl and now you're living and working in Manhattan. You know, what kind of culture shock was that aspect of being on All My Children like for a young Katie McLean? Well, I had moved there when I was 17 with a play and we did that at the John Drew out in East Hampton. And, uh, so I had almost two years in New York without having a big job. Um, we lived in a studio apartment and, you know, me and my mom on a, a futon. Um, and, but it was still great. You know, I went to dance classes all the time and, I walked the streets and I wanted to move to New York. I had to move to New York. I had to get out of Los Angeles because I, what I realized then at, at 16 years old was that, um, you know, a girl my age was, um, well, I'll just say it. I mean, I, I, I was shark chum, you know, I was, I was blood in the water and I started noticing that people starting to touch me and be too close to me and, I, you know, I just knew I had to get out of Los Angeles or else I was going to get eaten alive. And also, um, you know, New York gave me freedom. I, we couldn't afford for me to get a, um, driver's license. So I had to, um, uh, be able to get around without my mother because she was driving me bananas. So as every 16 year old's mother does. So, (laughs) um, so New York just, when I, when the play went to New York, I was like, oh, okay, here we go this is what we need to do. I can train here. I can take classes. I can, 
you know, I can, you know, I'll, I feel safer. And here's the crazy thing, you know, what New York makes you face is the, is it's just more direct. It's still there. It's just more direct. So, I mean, the, the, the construction workers, the, you know, <laughs> it's just not subtle. And, uh, that scared the hell out of me too. I mean, I had people following me. I mean, it was crazy. I, you know, but, uh, but I, I had, I had to learn how to handle it. And, you know, New York was, uh, a good place to learn it. Now, your first All My Children husband, as you mentioned, was played by the late legendary David Canary. Um, tell us what David was like and just what it was like to work with him. Well, everybody wanted to work with David because David was always prepared. He was a professional. He had, um, he was incredibly disciplined, incredibly structured. And in his day, you know, he always swam for an hour before he even came to work and he didn't live in... Um, New York City. So it was quite a journey for him to get up at four o'clock in the morning, swim for an hour, and then take an hour drive into the city. And, uh, you know, he always had fruit for breakfast, salad for lunch. You know, you could count on him like clockwork um, with a great attitude, never had a, never came in like a diva or depot. And, um, you know, was always listening to you. And, you know, he, he brought out the best. So if you were working with David Canary, you know, you're just like, oh, <laughs> and he was a gentleman and, you know, I mean, there was never any funny stuff or anything that made you feel creep, creepy or weird. He was a total gentleman. So, I mean, I, I was so blessed to work with him and Julia Barr and Michael Knight, like right away, you know, they were, you know, the five gold star standard actors, um, I thought on the show and, and, um, that's who I wanted to be with. So I did whatever I could to be with them. <laughs> It's like, I will act my butt off. Just let me work with these people. So it was great. It was great. Well, Tad and Dixie, of course, almost from the start, became fan favorites and became a super couple. Uh, What are your favorite memories of working with the man behind Tad, Michael E. Knight? Boy, favorite memories. You know, there were times we would laugh. uh, I mean, like to the pee your pants type of laughing, like on set, just hysterical. And, um, I think those probably those, and also the, the day, the hours, my God, the days, hours, probably months and years that we spent, um, working on the material. And by that, I mean, you know, with all great respect to, to the writers, um, you know, we, as a team were allowed to put our own spin on things, move, move the pacing around a little bit. Um, and it, it's so funny because I, I I talked to him about this recently on um, I think it was on Entertainment Weekly and and uh, it came up and and he said I and I said you know Mike I think you kind of taught me how to write and he goes oh no no you taught me how to write <laughs> so it's funny I was like that's so nice of you to say but but basically we we worked together we worked off of each other and together as a team and um, and I loved that you know push pushing back and forth this works no that doesn't work no that's funny no that's not funny we got to preserve this moment. That's what we did. We were, and, and, you know, in later years when we kind of backed or or were backed off of that with different, um, um, producing teams, um, I don't think it was as good, you know, it's, you know, somebody once said to me and I'm I'm not, I don't mean to like, you know, blow myself up here, but you know, they, they said the, the kindest thing, it was so meaningful to me. And they said, you know, we all, you know, that you're not Dixie, but Dixie wouldn't have been the same without you. And I was just like, oh, 
know, thank you. It's thank true. you for saying that. Thank you for recognizing that, you know, that this wasn't the character that anybody could have played, that I that I brought something, that brought me, I brought me to it. And and although I am not her, I you know, there were elements of my humor or my my things that moved me and you know, and I just really appreciated that 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 has been recognized in the in the long run, you know, um, because sometimes you do feel like you're a voice shouting in the wilderness, jumping up and down going, why? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody hear me? Um, and, you know, and, yet, and, it, and I guess they did. I guess they did. So that's in, in, incredibly. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think it was about the Tad Dixie pairing that struck such a chord with the audience? He was handsome. And she was normal. <laughs> and he was kind of uh, morally always about to cross the line in a way that he shouldn't. And she came from um, a super grounded, uh, earthy background with a lot of family um, wisdom that she could call upon even when she made mistakes. And uh, and that kind of grounded homespun family um, values, I guess, if you will, um, gave, gave something to, to him as the sort of wild, you know, man about town that he could never have kind of accessed otherwise. And so they were, I think in, in some way, it was a, a woman's dream, like, oh, I'll get the wild guy and settle him down, you know? But, um, <laughs> You know, it, it, it was a nice fantasy. It, it was a fantasy that worked with these two characters. Yeah. Agreed. The cat, Tad the Cad, no more after Dixie. So in 1990, you won your first daytime Emmy. And the name of this category tickles me to this day. Outstanding ingenue. Um, <laughs> I can actually still remember the clip they played to illustrate your work right before you won. I mean, I was such a big fan and so excited watching from home. Uh, but what stands out to you about the experience of winning and the night of that first victory? All right, I'm looking at the Emmy right now, and it says Outstanding Juvenile Female. Uh, outstanding Juvenile Female. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So thank God I missed the ingenue one. <laughs> they, they, they did a little polish on that, um, which I'm extremely grateful. Um, so what well, stands out for me? Um, well, I knew it was a tight category, and I think it was pretty much between um, like me and Liz Vassy were, were both nominated that year. And, and um, I, I was really hoping because, again, I, I, you know, if I didn't, make these markers it was sort of just the way i'd set up the game in my head was you know this isn't you're you're not meant to be this because i just didn't want to be i didn't just want to be okay at something you know and um i wanted to be really good at something it's it's much more fun (laughs) (laughs) so uh boy, boy what do i remember about that i remember uh the dress which i you know i bought in um with my mom in uh, Westport, Connecticut at, at a store. And, you know, my mom loved to buy clothes for me that were really meant for um, a woman in her forties in the fifties. <laughs> <laughs> and I, if I recall correctly, there was quite some shoulder pads going on there as well. Oh my God. In the, um, in the jacket. Yes. Yeah, so I tried to get that jacket off as fast as I possibly could, but like good grief. I mean, I am just a, I'm a fashion disaster. For most of <laughs> 
most of that was it's really horrifying. The Everyone hair, was. The clothes. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I did world turns later on, I, I just said to the, the ladies in the hair department, I said, no ice sculptures. No, <laughs> don't do it. I know you can, but I beg of you not to. <laughs> so that Emmys was was really really important to me, and um, and winning was huge. And all I wanted to do was tell Michael Knight how much I loved him. It's <laughs> like I love you so much. I didn't know what love was. I, it was just like my my partner, and I just just that was the feeling I had of like, you know, I love my partner, or my friend, my my buddy who's been, you know, helping me to achieve these moments in, um, in my work. And, and I loved David Canary. I had to tell him that I loved him. <laughs> I had to tell Julia Parr how much I loved her. You know, so that, that's, that's it. You just get ridiculous when, when you have those moments, you just want to tell everybody how much you love them. So that's what I did. <laughs> Um, now, Dixie's meddlesome uncle on the show, Palmer Cortland, was played by another legendary actor who is no longer with us, James Mitchell. What comes to your mind when you think about him? Oh, James was funny. He was funny. Um, and, oh, God. I will always, like, there. here's a perfect example. So sometimes in the blocking, we would end up sort of standing next to each other, almost shoulder to shoulder in a straight line, so that the cameras, which are you know, um, opposite us, they call it like a fourth wall. Like if you imagine in a theater, it's very, very similar of a setup. So the cameras are sort of where the audience would be in a theater. So the cameras can get all of our reactions at the end of the shot, you know, in the, in the older times of soaps, the, the tags would just kind of go on and on. Uh, at the, the end of the, the, the tags are, uh, um, the characters reacting, um, to some sort of dramatic moment at the end of a scene. And we had to hold for the tags. So we're standing in a line, holding for tags, looking at each other. And suddenly he starts to say, birds on a beach, birds on a beach. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like those seagulls looking at each other, you know, with the head craning to the left to the right. <laughs> and then we died. We died laughing so hard. And, and I still use that expression anytime, like we're at the end of a scene. I'll be like, birds on a beach. Was it you? Did you do it? (laughs) So he was funny and classy and, um, uh, boy, just, a never, never came to work and said like, oh, by the way, my years in Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. My years at studios, blah, blah, blah. He was never like that. He was just there. What are we doing today? Let's run lines. Um, and Michael always tells this story, which I think is funny. Um, sometimes, you know, there, sometimes it was hard to remember all those lines. And, uh, uh, so he would sometimes take some of his lines, cut them out of the script and tape them onto the back of certain props. <laughs> so then in the blocking, if he had to walk over to the mantle and there was a plate, decorative plate on the mantle, he'd take the plate off and inspect, look like, you know, inspect like he was looking, sorry, he would take it off and look at the back of it like he was inspecting the plate and there would be his line. So he would have it. <laughs> Smart. Smart. So one day Mike and someone else, I forget who, but they, they rearranged all the props. <laughs> so during shooting, he would walk over and he'd pick up the plate and it was the wrong plate. And there wasn't the line. And he was waiting. Yeah. So then he was like, Michael. <laughs> they right away who did it. 
<laughs> but it was good fun. It was all in good fun and, you know, no meanness at all. It was just, just everyone being silly to each other. So it was good times. I'm very grateful for having Well, you, you ended up leaving all my children for the first time in 1996, then returned uh, from 1998 through 2002. By that time, she had been Mrs. Tad Martin three times over. Um, Now you uh, last aired as Dixie in February, 2002. And in April, just a short time later, you made your As the World Turns debut as Rosanna Cabot. So tell us about how uh, you joining As the World Turns came about. I mean, I'm sure you know this, but like that was not the last time I played Dixie in 2002. Yeah, so that was of course, just like, of course. Yeah, so that was just like the last big chunk, like a giant arc. Um, when I finished that particular arc, um, you know, the way World Turns kind of came around was because um, it had a lot to do with the World Trade Center 9/11 happening, um, and it was such a momentous experience to be in New York when that occurred. I'm sure I wasn't like. I was like many people who said, okay, everything in my life now has to change. I'm going to break up with my boyfriend. I'm going to color my hair. I'm going to, I'm going to move. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to change jobs. I did all <laughs> of those things, every single one. And then I was like, wow, this is, you know, the economy was in the crapper, if you will. And, uh, I was like, wow, this is not really a great time to be doing all of these things. Maybe I should take my job back. And, uh, and then World Turns called. And I was like, okay, this is a nice change. It's a little bit of a change. It's a new character, but it's still in the daytime world. It's still a regular job that will help me cover my costs for now. And, and, uh, and that's kind of exciting. You know, I can show people that I can play something, something else. And, it, you know, it was really just Chris Goutman, the executive producer, calling me up and asking me if I wanted to do it, which was great. We love jobs like that. And um, so, you know, we just had dinner and talked about it. And, you know, really, I, you know, I love the character. I love. And again, he was also very open to me developing the character. So I wrote a huge backstory and what she would be like in various situations and you know, made suggestions as to, you know, possible options for other history that, you know, may not have occurred with when the character was existing before. And I love to be, you know, I, I never, it never really occurred to me that that wasn't something that I could do as an actor, you know, because I've been doing it as, as Dixie, I always created these backstories or, you know, figured out different ways to, to play the character in a new way through writing. And so that was fantastic. And Again, it was a great opportunity to have to prove myself, you know, so I was going to prove myself in a whole new way on that show. And um, and I'm so glad because I met some amazing people, including the amazing, wonderful Maura West, who I adore and respect so much. So and John, of course, who I'm married to. <laughs> Um, well, having spent the majority of your adulthood, you know, and career on all my children, you know, what was it like joining and adjusting to a new show? It was a shock because, uh, all my children was one of those shows where the network was very involved. Um, there were always some kind of, there was like little stardust on it. There were famous actors that would come to the set. And of course it was right there in the middle of New York city. Uh, so there was a little bit more of a spotlight on the show and world turns had moved out to the furthest reaches of Brooklyn. And, uh, so the network wasn't very involved. They weren't going to really make a big effort to get into their car and drive out to Midwood. It was almost at Coney Island for 
people who are trying to spot it on the map in their minds. And uh, it was a good, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on where you lived in the city or in Brooklyn. And um, just to get to work. And and the, <laughs> the studio is a little grimier. And I think some people there had a bit of a chip on their shoulder about like, we're the, we're the real, real show. We're the real actors. You know, you, you, all my children, you ABC people, you know, <laughs> it's just sort of like the New York LA thing, you know, like, Oh, you know, oh we're better. Oh, we're better. Oh, you guys are, you know, you're shallow. Oh, you got your head up your butt, you know, like <laughs> just, just people, just the way people do things. It's just, just funny. So, so I was like, well, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm here to work really hard. I worked really hard on all my children. Like that, this was not like tea and cakes every day. This was, this was hard work. So I had to prove myself to them. And, um, and that's, that's just, I don't know, it's just the way it is. Sometimes it's, uh, not every show is welcomes you with open arms. And, um, so, uh, I, I think I earned my stripes and I think that's probably why it took me three times, um, to, you know, I had three nominations in a row for Emmy nominations before I won. Finally, you know, I just had to do my time, you know, as they had done their time and earn my, earn my place. So I did. Well, you mentioned the great good fortune you had to play sisters on As the World Turns with Mara West. One of the real like through line relationships for Rosanna was the Carly Rosanna one. So we'd love to hear more about your relationship with Mora and what it was like to work with her and play sisters with her. Well, Mora is also hilarious. Um, one of the hardest workers I've ever met. Um, she used to commute in. Sometimes it would be two hours each way because she had a bunch of kids and she wanted them to live in, you know, away from the city. They didn't want to raise their kids in the city. So I was like, I don't know how you do that. I, I, I couldn't do that. I tried that. And I was like, no, that's not, no, no, <laughs> no, 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 not happening. So, um, that lasted for like a month. So yeah, I mean, she's, gosh, I, I think one of the things that I remember the most, and she might remember this as well too, is, is I, I had, um, you know, world turns was like her, her first big break, you know, and I had had a break before that for a very long period of time. And I had also had all these experiences before I got all my children on oh, tons of different sets and tons of different scenarios. So I had a very sisterly feeling towards her when she got tired or she needed, she needed some extra just shoulder to lean on. And I was happy to be that for her because I knew how she felt. I knew how it felt to burn out. I knew how it felt to have a tough day. I knew how it felt to want to have an ally on set with you. Um, because sometimes this sets can be very competitive and, I, it's not my favorite kind of acting. I don't like it, but I can't always control it if somebody wants to compete with me. Um, acting wise, you know, there, there's actually a whole mode of thinking in terms of acting training that the whole scene is a, is a competition, which I personally hate. Uh, but some people do that and train that. And I think it's an anathema to the craft itself, but that's just me. <laughs> so I was really, it was just like, I remember a very particular moment where we, that we had, where she realized that I wasn't there to, to compete with her. And it was, 
she could relax. And, and I was so grateful to be able to give that to her. You know, I was like, ah, oh, I'm so happy to, to help you see that not everybody in this business is, is a shark, you know? Well, that show also proved to be successful for you Emmy-wise. In 2004, you picked up your second Emmy, this one for Outstanding Supporting Actress for the role of Rosanna. Uh, what are your memories of that second one? Um, I went with my, um, my best friend, Rhonda, and we sat in the front row and she sat, I remember her nudging me and going, oh my God, we're sitting next to Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> which was so great. And it was just, it was really, really a good night. Um, and what's crazy is, uh, Oh, I shouldn't say who it was, but, uh, but someone who was very drunk. Um, I put the Emmy down (laughs) (laughs) and he walked through our circle and he tripped over my Emmy and broke it. (gasps) Oh, wow. Yes, he broke it. He broke the wing off. And like that, that sound you made was like everybody in the group went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, so, so far for the course of life. But I just, uh, I like went home and I like, I like taped it, you know, <laughs> Oh no, watch <laughs> tape. And I was like, that's ah, not going to work, is it? So they sent me a new one. Bless them. They sent me a new one. Oh but uh, that was so bizarre. I was like, broken Emmy. I should write a poem. Broken Emmy. <laughs> All that work and this is broken. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's one of those moments, like I've had many in life, which tell you, like, don't hang on to these things too hard. You know, they, they, it's just a moment. It's just a little check mark, you know, that you get to have for a minute. But uh, it's uh, there, are, there are more important things than this. So. So enjoy it, you know, enjoy life, but you know, don't, don't hang your hat on it. Doesn't make you better than anybody else. You know, maybe I have that Midwesternness, you know, my mom was Midwestern and upbringing anyway. And, you know, they tell you, don't, don't get, don't get too big for your britches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Rosanna had a, a tortured relationship. I think it is fair to say with the character of uh, Paul Ryan, who was played by Roger Howard. What was working with Roger like? <laughs> Roger, Roger is a really good actor and, uh, he's a very odd duck and you, I never knew, I could never tell whether he liked me or not. I was pretty sure that he didn't. Um, (laughs) but I kept trying to make him like me, which just, you know, you know how that is. That never goes well, but we worked really well together. We played off each other really well. And somehow or other, our characters worked really well together. So when we were when we were acting, there was this very tangible energy that, you know, some people call chemistry or magic. Um, and then, you know, call cut and that is gone. That, I mean, that was just gone. <laughs> it was just turned on and it would turn off. It was a strange experience. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as time's gone, gone by, I've, I've really grown in my respect for Roger. I, I've always respected him, but I've really grown in my respect um, and watching him work with John on general hospital, he's done some really, really incredible work. And, uh, I think he deserves a little more recognition as, as an actor. I, I really do. Mm-hmm. Now for a good period of time, you sort of went back and forth between 
All My Children and World Turns, and certainly your most infamous exit from All My Children occurred when Dixie was seemingly killed off via a batch of poisoned pancakes. Uh, now, in the end, Dixie came back to life and sometime later got a happy ending. But at the time, no pun intended, I imagine that left a bad taste in your mouth. Ah, what a bunch. You know, that year could have been a lot of things, but it turned out to be one of the hardest years of my life, I think. Um, partly because, well, there were, there were a lot of reasons, but um, that... I made the mistake of saying what I wanted, <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes with a show, you've got to smell the atmosphere and you've really got to consider the politics and see what is happening. And at that time I was just, you know, I oftentimes I'm, I, I, it's taken me a lifetime to learn this, but, <laughs> but I did not recognize that there was a much heavier network influence at that time that was having that was playing into the politics behind the scenes and so when I was taken to lunch and asked well what kind of stuff stories do you like Katie and I was like oh you're asking me well I instead of saying what I should have said which is like whatever she wants to write I'm sure is going to be great <laughs> I should have said I said, well, I like social justice storylines and I really love like, you know, anything that had to do with what Agnes was doing back in the eighties with like AIDS and homelessness. And, you know, and I just watched that writer who shall not be named, just look at me like she wanted to kill me because she had a story all written and it just didn't enter my little pea brain that I was, I was, I was making that story go away by what I was saying. And, uh, um, I didn't realize I even had that power, uh, at that time. I, I had no idea. So, um, yeah, so that became a very difficult year because I think she was very angry at me, um, for ruining this great story idea that she had. And I got the brunt of that. And I've talked about that before. And, um, you know, I don't think it was right or fair personally to take your anger out on an actor, but I have seen it done before. And, um, if somebody doesn't like you and they have to write for you, you know, I, I, I really, you know, that's going to be a tough year for you. Um, and it was for me. Uh, I mean, I literally had to do, uh, I want to kill myself story for three months straight. And you going to work and doing monologues about how much you want to die is really hard on your, you personally. Um, you know, we, you know, we, we play our, our, our field is the field of emotion. And, you know, they, you can't help when you're doing a very difficult storyline every day to take some of that home with you. And uh, so after about three months, I began to get angry as, as anybody would when they're being forced to do something that's really painful and, and, and almost felt like torture. So, um, so that was just, you know, and then that's not a good feeling. And, you know, and you get, you know, snarky and bitchy and angry yourself and, and it, then, then I had an epiphany, which was like, you know, Katie, just let it go. Just let it go. And just, you're there to do a job. Just shut up, go do your job and um, entertain people and just don't let this get to you. And by the time I had made that turn, um, you know, uh, I think, you know, I'd had a conversation with that writer and that did not sit well with her. And 
um, and I wasn't like I was an, an a-hole, if you will. I mean, I, I was saying, you know, could you please? And, you know, if you would please consider, you know, I wasn't, I was respectful and polite, um, but I wasn't towing the line, which is sometimes just what you have to do in a, in a, in a job like soaps where, you know, they're writing a script every day, five days a week, you know, at least, you know, 360 weeks a year. So a few weeks off, but it's a, it's an enormous undertaking for writers. And, um, so, so by the time I kind of had my epiphany, she had made up her mind and, um, poison pancakes was going to be my, <laughs> her, my, her final word on the, on the subject, which is I've had to live with ever since in terms of <laughs> conversations about it, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, let's just call it what it is, you know, just, I don't, do you ever see Soap Dish? Do you ever see the movie Soap Dish? Yes, of course. of course. Right. So, you know, I always think when I talk about this storyline, I think about Whoopi Goldberg saying, he's got no head. How can you come <laughs> back to the show if he's got no head? And so <laughs> it just felt like that. And so, um, you know, but fortunately, uh, you know, that was, I remember saying, you know, it, it has, it's, it hasn't affected me horribly, but it, it has definitely affected me to some degree. Um, but, uh, I remember sitting with the producer who was, who was telling me that they were going to kill my character and, and, and she said to me, you know, we almost didn't do this. And I was like, well, then why? why right. do <laughs> just don't do it. And, but she had spotted when I'd made the turn, I had spotted when I made the turn in my own approach. And, uh, they said, you know, that we saw you at the Disney event down in Disney Orlando, wherever that was. And, you know, you just seem to really be happy. And, and, uh, I was like, ah, just, I guess I made that turn a little too late, but, uh, but yeah, so it goes, so it goes. So the story goes. Darn you, Satin Slayer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's so, you know, I mean, Mike, Mike will say this too. I'm sorry, Mike, I'm bringing you into this, but, um, the show didn't feel quite like the old, all my children, you know, at that point either. And I know the next year, um, there was a new writer that came on and he was giving people notes. Like if you don't understand what's happening with the characters or what's happening in the moment, just look as an actor, just look like you smell something bad. <laughs> okay. Wow. And I was like, that would not have sat well with me. Cause I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, wow. Cause that's somebody who thinks that thinks of the, of the actors as like, we're just Barbies and, you know, and we're not really actors. We're, you know, we're just Barbie dolls. And, and um, you know, I, that was probably the case, you know, very, very contemptuous of, of, of the actual acting, you know, but I'll tell you the shows that are still on those actors are working their butt off to try to be, you know, give you great performances, give you real performances. And I think that's oftentimes um, uh, overlooked when, in, when people talk about the medium, you know, if you stop and you sit and you watch a great scene and you're like, that's great acting, you know, I could be on this show, could be on any show, you know. And achieved under, you know, much, much harder cir- uh, conditions and circumstances. Exactly. So, yeah. Yes, no, exactly. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you sort of spent the, the early aughts, um, 
between, you know, going back and forth between both all my children and as the world turns. And then at the end of the decade, uh, you were part of both of their finales, first of world turns in 2010. And then the following year, all my children, uh, what stands out to you about your last day at world turns? You know, I had, I had left the show a couple of times, so I had not quite the same kind of level of, of attachment that the people who were there had been there consistently for years, like, you know, Mora and my Michael Park. Um, and so I, I remember just, I remember just really feeling for them, you know, because it was them going into the great unknown and, and also just the, a huge end of an era for them. Um, and I'd been through like those huge moments myself, you know, um, in different ways. And, you know, like I said, like, I, I just, I just thought, wow, this is, you know, this is, this is tough. And I was friends with some of the producers as, as well. And so, you know, even after they stopped shooting, you know, we were, we were talking, how's it going as they were closing up the, closing up the sets and the studio. And she said, you know, it'd be fine if I didn't have to hear the sound of the sets going through the wood chipper all day. Mm. <laughs> wow. You know, and I was like, Whoa, that's so sad. You know, just like all that. Cause you know, I mean, just as we're saying like this huge, this huge world, no pun intended, but you know, that takes so many people to build and then continue to keep, keep going, you know, was now, considered no longer, you know, needed or wanted. And I mean, my God, how many years was that show on the air? Like 40? It was 19, 1956 to 2010. I mean, that's um, 54 years. My math's worse. So I'm going to take your word for 54 years. Um, but it, it feels like, you know, I mean, there, there's nothing like that to be closing that show out. And then you know, the horrible feeling like, oh, it's our fault. Like we weren't good enough. We weren't, the, you know, we didn't try hard enough. Um, so, you know, um, feeling like you're letting down the legacy, you know? So there was a lot of, a lot of that feeling. Um, and then with all my children, you know, very similar, very similar feeling of like, we've let down the legacy. And yet there was this sprinkle of hope with the, um, with the online uh, contract kind of hanging in the air and, and a feeling like, you know, I mean, Everybody said in the '90s when the OJ trial was being uh, was preempting all of our shows, like, "Oh my God, you know, th this is this ride's going to end. This is going to end. This is daytime is, is about to lose its um, place in terms of how it, it, it dominates the ratings and supports nighttime television with the with the money that it uh, gets from the sponsors." And you know, it was a so I think people have been prepping for years, like this situation is going to change. And the concept of moving it to the internet, it really was a brilliant concept. It was just mm -hmm. for execution. And, yeah. you know, it wasn't the execution of artistically because they brought back the show. There was, there was the show. There was the feeling, the home, the, uh, the energy of all my children. Um, and uh, Ginger Smith was the EP and she did that so beautifully. And she'd been with all my children for a really, really long time. I mean, since I, you know, since back in the eighties. So she knew the show. But somehow or other, the, the financial side of things just weren't handled, you know, uh, properly. Then keep keep the reins on, on the horses, and um, and that was really too bad. That was it was it was not just for us, but for the fans because yeah, I think the right. fans were really ready to make that jump, you know.
Absolutely. And Mara and I have always talked about how um, it was like a little ahead of its time in terms of streaming. Yeah. And perhaps if it was done now, I feel like we would be looking at a completely different circumstance yeah. totally. and success rate. Right. Totally. Totally. I, I think now, you know, last year or now, well, COVID and all that, but like right. with COVID notwithstanding, yes, now would it, would it just, it would be, it would be a big hit. It would be a big hit. It, yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, you did make your way back to daytime in 2014. You popped back up as Kelly on Young and the Restless. So she's probably best remembered for torturing her ex-lover, Jack, played by Peter <laughs> Bergman. Um, did you have fun working with Peter? Uh, you know, the, the, the big hoot was that Peter and I had crossed paths on all my children back in 88, you know, and he loved that show so much that his wife saved a brick from the building when it was torn down. <laughs> he got he got choked up telling us that story on the Absolutely. Yeah, that's how much he loved the show. And I was like, wow, dude, I, I thought I loved the show, but you kinda like <laughs> went to like a whole new level. And um so he you know, he he we had that those those fond memories and nostalgia in common. So that was a that was a pleasure and, and also a certain kind of pacing and tone that we understood and comedy like romantic comedy daytime style which is a very particular thing and uh and was a pleasure to play it was a real pleasure to play i did not like it when they turned the character into a crazy person um that was very painful and i felt that they that she wasn't meant to be that she was meant to be troubled but she wasn't meant to like fully turn into a psychopath and you know, every day I had to do that was, was painful, but I did my job. I did it. I was going to shut my mouth and do my job. And I did. <laughs> you did it. You did it. <laughs> yep. Um, goodness. Well, Katie, your daytime characters haven't always been so lucky in love, but a few months ago, you hit the six year mark in your real life marriage to John Lindstrom, Kevin and Ryan on General Hospital, who, as you noted, you met on As the World Turns. Do you remember the first time you met John? Uh, yes, I do. Actually. Um, we met in 2001 at the All My Children Studios when he was there to direct. And we both looked at each other and went, Oh boy, who are you? <laughs> and, and we started talking and then Fanola, who was working on the show then, like interrupted us and like came between us. And then she's like, oh, John, I have to talk to you because she knew General Hospital from the West Coast. And I remember looking over to Julia Barr and she was looking at me like, mm-hmm, yep, he's a cutie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that could, that could work. She was like, that could get up giving me that, like, go do that. And I was like, well, like, you know, I don't know. So we, that was the first time I met him. And then I didn't see him again until 2009, 2009, no, 2000 and yeah, 2009 when I came back to world turns. And then I was like, do I know you? And he was like walking up the hallway. He's a big guy, you know, walking fast. And I was like, you're from the West coast, aren't you? And, <laughs> and, uh, this is Morgan. And, uh, and then we just became really good friends. We were really good friends for over a year. And I think, and, and I remember, you know, saying like, gosh, why can't I meet somebody like John? And I was like, well, you met him. So you <laughs> <laughs> should say something. So I did. And, and the rest is history. And we've been together 10 years. Awesome. Well, tell us the best thing about being married to John Lindstrom. John is the, is just one of the best people 
on the planet, frankly. I mean, he's a good-hearted person. He's a very smart person, uh, incredibly well-informed, well-read. He's kind, deeply kind human being. He's a hard worker. I deeply respect him in terms of his how he deals with people, how he manages his career. He's got a great attitude in his approach to life and just disciplined in his regular everyday life. Like, you know, he just went off on a bike ride and I'm like, I haven't exercised since 1962, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, God bless you, man. Like, I got to get into this. I don't know how you do it. Um, but uh, yeah, he's, he's just the greatest, greatest person to live with. Um, I mean, I, I am so blessed. I'm so blessed in my partner. That makes us very happy to hear. Yeah. (laughs) Now, for the last several years, you know, you've really been focusing your artistic energy more and more uh, behind the cameras. Indeed, you're an award-winning filmmaker. You're perhaps best known on that side of the camera for your your celebrated documentary, Seeing is Believing Women Direct. You're also a daytime Emmy-nominated director for your work on the web series Venice. Just recently, your short film on Foster Girls which is called Burnt Feathers, Broken Wings, won the Best Social Justice Film Award at the Santa Fe Film Festival. It's a very uh, impressive career pivot, if you will. So uh, tell us about this, you know, sort of professional metamorphosis that you've undergone. Well, thank you so much for pointing out all those lovely things that I'm so very proud of. Um, (laughs) I think... You should um, be. I am, I am. I, I think it kind of started, well, I will say... All the way back in my early 20s, I took a directing workshop in um, New York at Ensemble Studio Theater with Kurt Dempster. And um, I decided then I, I wanted to be a director. And I went to my mom and I told her and she said, oh, God, please don't. <laughs> I, I didn't know what she meant or what she was talking about. But she was like, you have to promise me that you're not going to do that. And she was dying. She was very sick. And she died when I was 25. Um, because now, oh, yeah, it's, it's okay. It's been 25 years, right? So um, she, uh, you know, at the time I was supporting her. And so I was like, okay, I guess, you know, this is very depressing, but I'm, I, uh, I guess I won't. And I just put it out of my head. And, but all the time I was on All My Children, because I started that show so young, I had it in the back of my head, like, well, there'll be something else that I will grow t- into doing. And, um, I thought it was going to be painting. So I went to art school in my late twenties. When I went back to all my children, I was paying for art school. And then, uh, I switched and I was going to start do writing. And when I went to world turns, I was paying for NYU and in the new school. And, um, I, I just kept trying to educate myself because I didn't want to find myself without a job and without another vocation. So, um, because, you know, acting is so, um, I mean, it's not exactly a job that you can count on and, and soaps is the only, you know, was, and certainly for a few, uh, still is one of the only consistent jobs there is. So I knew I had to keep, keep studying other aspects of the form. And, um, I was also very lucky to be in New York so that I could go and to see all of these great international films at the, um, various independent cinemas that were all over New York at that time or Kim's video. I was telling a friend uh, recently 
you know, I didn't get a degree. I, I went to the movies. <laughs> I learned so much there. So, so much. Um, you know, uh, or I could go off on that just in, in its own subject, but you know, the problem with this algorithm in terms of the streaming apps is you only see what they think you want to see. You don't have this opportunity to randomly walk through a video store and suddenly be, be, you know, drawn to a, a film for, you know, its cover or, or its title or, and then pick it up and read about it and go like, I don't know, this seems really interesting. I, I might not have ever picked this up before, but I'm going to get and watch, get this one and watch this one. So that sort of thing I, I had a great exposure to in New York and it really uh, showed me things that were possible in life that um, I didn't know about before that I didn't know that these things existed. So that was a little cracking of the, of the door opening. And then in 2008, well, let's say 2006, so that the one great thing that did happen in 2006 was I made this album. So I've always done these other arts on the side of daytime. And, you know, uh, the album was, a, it was a, an incredible experience and we worked in great studios in, in New York. And um, I was very proud of having made that and I'm very proud of it still. And, and when 2008 came around in the financial crisis, I was like, writing, I, I can write, let me write. And that's when I started writing my book and that took about five years. And so I finished the book and I released that when, um, it took more than five years, but, uh, I released that when I, uh, started on Young and the Restless. And so, you know, all of this is sort of a, a preamble, a long preamble. Thank you for listening <laughs> to, um, to getting behind the camera as a filmmaker. And, you know, one of the things that people underestimate about film is that how much it is an amalgam of all the arts, the visual arts, you know, the music, writing, um, acting, um, you know, production design, you know, all uh, camera work, uh, framing, all of these, these things are arts in and of themselves that all come together in the art of film. Um, and, and the theater, but, um, you know, film has its own particular way of doing it. And, and so I think, um, gosh, when was it? It was, was it 2011, um, when I was doing the online version of all my children and I was going to have somebody else direct the short, that film that I had written. And, uh, John said, well, why don't you direct it? And suddenly the spark was like, gosh, I, I guess I could. And, I had been helping him with his feature film at that time, you know, and, uh, various projects and I'd written a pilot and I, you know, dab dabbling really, but just sort of, you know, flexing and seeing what it was, what I could do and what I like to do. And when I started making that first short film, uh, it was called flip Fantasia. Uh, it was just so much fun because you know, I, it was every single art and I got to play in every single world of that art. And wow, that is fun. As a director, that is a lot of fun. So I did a second film right away called The World of Albert Fa. And within four months, I was like, boom, let's make another one. Again, it's brutally hard work. But if you like that, if you're a marathon runner, this is a job you will like. If you're a creative marathon runner. And so I... I just was like, okay, I'm, I, I remembered I wanted to direct. I was like, yes, I will do this. And then the statistics all started coming out in the news about how few women were getting hired and getting uh, 
being able to make actual careers as directors. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I just found it. No. So uh, I fell into this um, idea of, well, you can be part of the solution or you can be part of the problem, but you can't just stand around and complain about it. That's, that's not going to work. So I said, okay, what can I do? And um, the idea came, you know, make a, make a documentary. And that's the craziest thing for anyone to, to decide that they're going to do. Let me tell you, like, if you've never made a documentary before and you've never even made a short form documentary before, it, you know, it takes a lot of, in, of, of just pure, I don't know, like naive guts. <laughs> which I guess I had John was going to be like, Oh my God, you're not. Cause the documentary is like, it's like a narrative on steroids. You know, you're, you're making a movie without knowing what the movie is going to be. There's not like a pre-written script that you can even follow. You don't know what people are going to say. And uh, you just, just get this rough idea. I think I'll have some animation. I'll talk to all these people. And well, then we'll go and shoot some B-roll and then maybe I can get on some sets and get some B-roll. And then you got to put the whole thing together. And, Oh my God. It, it was like jumping into grad school without going to undergrad. So, uh, I, I'm glad I did it, but you know, if I was fat at the Emmys, there's a reason why. <laughs> Cause I was stress eating some cookies. I was like, I'm editing, leave me alone and bring me the peanut butter. You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um i was like what do you mean it's the emmys i was like i can't put that dress on so um <laughs> oh girl it's a cross your leg situation and hope for the silhouette um but uh but i learned it thank god i learned it and it and you know i started i also had this idea that oh i'm going to shoot other things while I'm making this. So I really understand the craft of directing and I'm not just making a movie about something I don't know enough about. Brilliant. So I shot another short film and then I shot Venice, the series, the, you know, se season five, but we said had it split into two periods of time. And so we got the two noms for that, which was great, but uh, you know, it was setting the bar really high. <laughs> Crazy. Um, but also great, but also great. You know, I guess it's sort of like full circle. Like, you know, you, you put yourself in the hot water and, and you either learn how to swim or you drown. And, and if you learn how to swim, you can swim really good. And so, uh, or swim, swim really well. And, and, and so I'm really grateful that I, that I chose to do that because now I have all these tools and all these, uh, understandings about the world of filmmaking and about women in filmmaking and, and I'm, again, like super grateful that the film has made people feel like they can go out and do it. And that is the great win for me of for the whole, for all that effort and all of that exhaustion and all those pounds <laughs> is <laughs> that I've had women come up to me crying who were like, I, I, I was giving up on my career. I was giving up on myself. I, or I didn't think that I could do this and watching this movie made me realize that it's not only that I can, but that it's important for me to, to do this. My voice is important. And I was like, yes, win. <laughs> so, so that's been a great, great joy of, 
of the documentary and um and it's continuing to have a life like we i got a, a film sales agent we're getting calls internationally we're getting calls from pbs now which is great and you know it's just it's it's a it's going to be a long long journey and uh i'm very excited about that very excited and i could talk forever too about kids in the spotlight and and working with those foster kids, which is another great joy of my life, making films with foster kids. And um, that particular documentary that won the award at the Santa Fe uh, Film Festival is uh, about foster girls struggling with addiction. And um, I'm so proud to say that one of the girls is now enrolled in a film uh, writing program, screenwriting program. And I'm like, yes! Wow, that's amazing. Isn't that great? Yes, it really is. Well, uh, before we let you go, is there anything you would like to say to those listeners who have been likely a fan of yours since 1988 and have followed your life and career ever since? Well, I'm so grateful that those fans still follow me, whether I'm doing crazy videos like Susie effing homemaker and, you know, being just bananas and having a good time and, and they are loving that and, you know, or loving the nostalgia and the old pictures on social that I've been posting that I, uh, been finding during COVID it's all been this like deep dive into the boxes, you know, what's in here. And, um, so much fun to, to share that. And, um, and I'm so happy they've come along, uh, for the ride on the films. And, you know, one of the things that has always inspired me as, as an actor has been the lives of the people who watch the show. So, their lives, their suffering, um, their joys, their family, their losses, their wins, like their humanity is what makes me want to do what I do. So without them, I, I wouldn't have that inspiration. Like they are my inspiration and, um, they are the reason I make these movies. I make them for them. And so I'm so grateful that they, They've supported my work, whether I'm acting or, or filmmaking. Um, I just so, so grateful that they were part of the, this, my circle. And I, I hope they'll stay with me forever. I'm sure they will. Well, it was so nice catching up with you and hearing all your wonderful stories. Um, send our best to John. And once again, just thanks for being with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking. I'm just so honored that, uh, you know, Soap Opera Digest is doing uh, these interviews and that I was included. Thank you so much for, for reaching out. So glad we did. Thank you, Katie. Okay. Have a wonderful day. We'll talk soon. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Katie McLean for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.